The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I don't know if you know the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, but he was a famous 19th century American poet, probably best known for writing Paul Revere's Ride. Uh, But my favorite poem by Longfellow is actually one that was later put to music, and we actually sing it here every year during the season of Advent. And and we sing it because the words of this poem were, were forged in Longfellow's soul as the steel hammer of pain in his life slammed into the iron anvil of Advent in 1863. In other words, the pain that he felt collided with the hope that this season declares. What what pain? That the years had not been kind to Longfellow? He and his wife, yes, they had been blessed with the birth of six children, but even that was tinged with a little bit of pain. Great pain. One of their daughters had died in infancy. And then tragedy struck again in 1860 when Francis' dress caught fire. And Henry woke from a nap to the sound of her, her screams, but he could not extinguish the flames even when he tried to with his own body. And his wife did not survive. But that's not enough. Just three years later, on December the 1st of 1863, Henry would receive word that his eldest son, Charles, had been shot while fighting for the Union Army in the Civil War. Charles was nearly paralyzed. So just a few weeks later, on Christmas Day, Longfellow found himself reflecting on his pain. His personal pain. A widower with six children, the eldest of which who had almost just nearly died. Reflecting on corporate pain, his country split in two, still fighting, no end in sight. And as he sat, he heard a sound. A peal of church bells declaring the arrival of Christmas Day. And he heard the sound of singing, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And his personal pain collided with the hope of Advent. And Henry picked up his pen and he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then in despair I bowed my head There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Don't we feel this, Shades? Like especially during Advent. This is... This is a season meant to celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. That's what the word Advent literally means. It means coming. 
And so we celebrate Christ's coming and that his birth brings hope, love, joy, peace. That's what the candles represent on our Advent wreath. He brings hope, love, joy, and peace to you, to me, to the the world. But it's hard to celebrate those things when we see the reality of pain in our own lives and in the world around us. When we see kidnappings and murder, that's not a convenient illustration, Shades. That's reality that we in our community are experiencing and suffering through. When we see that and we grieve as a, as a community, when we see the reality of, of cancer and depression and anxiety, the reality of broken families and broken nations, of corruption and violence and bigotry, and we see hate that is so strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. When we see all of that, when the steel hammer of life's pain slams into the iron anvil of Advent, Like, how in the world are we supposed to sing of hope, love, joy, and peace? Does Advent have any real hope to offer you, or me, or the the world? This is why we are in Luke chapter 1 this morning. To hear Advent's announcement of hope to the world that's what's here over the next four weeks here's what we're going to do we're going to hear we're going to listen to four angelic announcements and they will be announcements of hope love joy and peace and my prayer for us my prayer for you is that the advent of christ will forge these things in the fires of your your soul today We listen for Advent's announcement of hope to the world. And we begin here because amidst the the world of pain that we experience, this is the hardest Advent reality for us to see, that of hope. And it's not just hard for us to see, it was hard for the people that Luke wrote his gospel to. It was hard for them to see. In the opening verses of this gospel, we learn that Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is most likely a Roman official, and he's a new believer in Jesus. And and you've got to understand, at this time, persecution is on the rise in the Roman Empire. Like for Theophilus, a Roman official, to follow Christ means he's got to risk everything. His his job, his, his home, his family, his his life i mean for this man his future looks pretty hopeless which is why in verse 4 luke says he's writing these things so that theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he has been taught in other words theophilus amidst a world of persecution and pain i want you to have a rock solid certain hope biblical hope in christ biblical hope is not like the way we normally use the word hope we normally use the word hope as the expression of an uncertainty i hope my team wins the iron bowl that's too soon isn't it it's too soon my bad but we use it to express an uncertainty that's not biblical hope it's not the way scripture uses the word hope biblical hope is not the expression of an uncertainty it is the expectation of a guarantee 
That's the kind of hope Luke wants Theophilus, he wants us to have in Christ. And he begins to unfold it for us with Advent's announcement of hope. Look at verse 5 with me. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He and his wife, uh, and, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke opens by showing Theophilus and us a world like ours. One in which hope is hard to see. That's what we're meant to feel. Like even... Even just by the first eight words he uses, he tells us that Herod the Great is king at this time. Herod the Great is a ruthless puppet king installed by Rome who rules over all of God's people. Rome rules over all of Israel right now. The people, God's people, they are not free. They are suffering under the, the Roman regime and there is not much hope on the horizon for them. As a matter of fact, it's been 400 years since they've even heard a word of hope from God. The last time God spoke through a prophet to his people was 400 years earlier through the prophet Malachi. And sure, it was a word of hope. I mean, if we go back and look at it, Malachi 3 and verse 1, God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I'm coming to you, God says. A messenger will come first. We get a little bit more clarity in the very final verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is the final word of the Old Testament. God promises to send a prophet who's going to be like Elijah. Elijah called the people to repentance, to come back to God. I'm going to send you a prophet like that. He will prepare the way for me. He will call you to come back to me because I'm coming to you right after him. I'm coming to be your king. And this is the hope that the people held on to. You can almost hear their hearts sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's what we want. Send Elijah the prophet. And then you come after him and you rule and reign. People longed and looked for the coming of this prophet like Elijah, and they waited and waited 400 years. This is actually why our season of Advent is four weeks long. Like the four weeks are symbolic. They symbolize the 400 years that God's people waited for Malachi's promise to come to pass. But after 400 years, still no Elijah. Still no advent of God as the king of his people. They're still waiting. Theophilus knows what this feels like. We know what this feels like. Because we too hold on to the promise of a coming king. Christ's second advent when Jesus will return to make all things new. But after 2,000 years, Still no return. Still no Christ as full and final King over everything. We are still waiting and our hearts are still singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
We know what this feels like to live amidst a broken world where we can feel this corporate sense of hopelessness. Luke wants us to look at a world like ours. One in which hope is hard to see. And he doesn't just show us that on the corporate level. No. He brings hopelessness into focus on the personal level as well by showing us a couple whose lives resemble the state of the nation. Just like the nation's hopeless, so is this couple. We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're told two things about them. They're blameless and barren. They're, they're blameless. That, that doesn't mean that they are sinless. We're going to see Zechariah's sin here in just a second. It doesn't mean that they're sinless, but it means that the the, the passion and the pattern of their life is one of righteousness and repentance. It's how Scripture describes the blameless all over the place. They live a life that's pattern of, of pursuing righteousness and, and repentance. They were blameless. And that fact is meant to make the second thing we're told about them shocking. We're told Elizabeth is barren. They have no children. This is meant to shock us because in this first century Jewish culture, barrenness was often seen as a sign of God's displeasure. Surely if you were living a blameless life, God would bless you with the blessing that is children. And if He's not, well, surely you're not blameless. Blamelessness and barrenness don't go together. And as a result, women who were barren were often subject to public reproach. And we know that that was the case for Elizabeth. That was her experience. All you got to do is look down at verse 25, where after she becomes pregnant, she literally says, the Lord has taken away my reproach among people. And people had treated her barrenness. They, they had People had treated her barrenness like it was blameworthy. Like it was her fault. They, they disgraced her, shunned her, reproached her. You ever feel this? You ever been made to feel this kind of despair and hopelessness? Singles. You ever feel this? You ever been made, to, maybe even by God's people, or especially by God's people, you ever been made to feel like there's something wrong with you? Like surely if you would be living faithfully, God would provide you with a spouse. You ever felt that kind of hopelessness and despair? Those of you that have experienced fertility struggles like Elizabeth, you know this pain. You can't help but often let the thoughts enter your mind, even though they're lies, that, that there's, there's something going on here that's your fault. Somehow God is displeased with you. And you ever felt that kind of despair and hopelessness? All of us, to some degree, in some way, know what this feels like. Because I'm willing to bet that all of us have had people accuse us of doing wrong when all we were doing was striving to faithfully live unto the Lord. You, you're striving to live a life that's blameless, a life of righteousness and repentance, and yet you're disgraced and shunned and mocked and ridiculed. We've all felt this kind of hopelessness. So we need the hope-filled message of Luke chapter 1. Hear this, Shades. The hope-filled message of Luke 1 is whatever barrenness you bear, 
whatever pain, whatever that is in your life, whatever barrenness you bear, it is not because you are blameworthy. Hear that. As soon as I say that, you're thinking there are exceptions to that rule. And yes, there are. Of course, there are situations where we experience painful consequences as a direct result of our sin. My children disobey me when I tell them not to touch the stove. They experience a painful consequence that is a direct result of their sin. The connection is clear. And that's the way it often is in those situations. If our pain is connected with our sin, the connection is typically blatantly clear. And when it's not, when it's not shades we must be careful not to connect our own barrenness or the barrenness of others with being blameworthy zechariah and elizabeth serve as a rebuke to those who would try and make that connection they were blameless and barren and it was hard for them to have hope for the advent of a child because we learn they are way past the baby bearing years like god must have forgotten them which would be slightly ironic because zechariah's name the name zechariah literally means the lord remembers they've got to feel forgotten and all god's people have to feel forgotten living in a land where it's hard to see hope Theophilus knows what this feels like. We know what this feels like. Corporate hopelessness, personal hopelessness. We know how this feels and we are, we are left asking, does Advent have any real hope to bring? To, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, to their world. Does Advent have any real hope to offer to you, to me, to, to our world? shades luke wants us to see an angelic announcement of hope is on the horizon look at verse 8 now why zechariah was serving as a priest before god when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood he was chosen by lot a lot is kind of like rolling dice or drawing straws he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the lord and burn incense there were roughly eighteen thousand priests at this time in israel they're split up into 24 different divisions and each division gets called up two weeks out of the year in order to serve in the temple plus they get called up at feast times zechariah's division the division of abijah has been called it's their turn to serve and he randomly gets selected for the supreme honor of burning incense in the temple this is a once in a lifetime chance for a priest i mean there's eighteen thousand of them if the lot fell to you, you would not be eligible to participate in the sacrifice again so as to allow the maximum number of priests to experience it throughout a lifetime. So Zechariah, he's at the height of his priestly career right here. He gets to burn incense. And this will be during either the morning or the evening offering. There were, there were two. There was a morning and an evening offering, twice daily sacrifices. They were called the perpetual sacrifice because they were literally offered every day consistently day after day after day morning evening morning evening a sacrifice offered for people's sins zechariah is probably going to get to burn the incense for the evening offering uh, because this was the one that was most well attended and verse 10 tells us there was a great multitude there so incense in hand he he enters into 
the temple. While the lamb is being sacrificed in the temple courtyard, the people are praying outside, he goes in to the temple proper, which is divided into two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. No one can go into the holy of holies except the high priest once a year. He goes into this holy place and he walks right to the edge of the Holy of Holies where right in front of the veil there is an altar where he begins to burn this incense and the smoke rises representing the prayers of the people going up before the Lord as a sweet aroma. And as the smoke rises, Zechariah would pray. He'd pray the customary prayer of the priest. A prayer for the redemption of Israel. Lord, fulfill your promises. Everything that's been prophesied. Save, bring it about, redeem, send Elijah. And then you come and you reign as king forever. He would pray for hope. But could he really believe that there was any hope to be had? 400 years of silence had surely settled into despair. But then... Verse 11 breathes hope into the air. Look at it. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. An angel shows up. Zachariah freaks out. As one does. I don't know if you've had an angel show up. This I tend to predict would be my personal response. Like seriously, whenever you get an angel ophony, which it just means an angelic appearance, that's your party word to share at Christmas time as you go around and talk about the angel ophonies in the text. So, whenever you get an angel ophony, the angel's words are always, first words are always, fear not. I, I like to think that they're actually annoyed while they say this. Oh, again, chill. It's good news, okay? This is how I read the Bible. I can't vouch for my hermeneutic, but there you go. But there's a reason for Zechariah to not be afraid. His prayers have been heard. And that begs the question, which prayer? The prayers that he and his wife have no doubt uttered again and again throughout the years for a child? Or the prayer he was just praying for the redemption of Israel? The answer is yes. This angel announces one baby as the answer to both of those prayers. First, Elizabeth will bear you a son. Call him John, for he will give you Great joy and gladness. Basically, the angel says, Zechariah, your name is fulfilled. The Lord has remembered you. See it in the name of your son. Give him the name John. John means the Lord is gracious. Zechariah, let the, the silence of despair be broken by the sound of hope. God is being gracious to you. And not just to you, but secondly, to all of his people. Look at verse 14 again. And you, yes, you personally will have joy and gladness. And many, many will rejoice at his birth. Why? 
Why so much joy and gladness at the birth of this baby? Why beyond the initial family and to all the people? Verse 15 tells us why. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Why is this baby going to cause so much joy? Because this baby is going to be different, John. Excuse me, Zechariah. This baby, John, he's going to be set apart unto the Lord. Look. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read that the priests were not allowed to drink alcohol anytime they were on duty serving the Lord. John's not allowed to drink it for his whole life because his whole life is set apart as service unto the, the Lord. He's not to be filled with wine, no. He's to be filled with the Spirit even before he's born. There's never been a baby like this. There will never be a baby like this again. Jesus himself will say in Luke 7 and verse 28, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What, why will John be so different? Why does he need to be filled with the Spirit even before he's born? What is all of this for? It's for the grace of God to be poured out not just on Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for it to be poured out on all. For God has not just remembered this couple. No, He's remembered all of His promises that have been percolating for 400 years. Verse 16 tells us, here is what this Spirit-filled John is going to do. Look at it. And He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him. Before who? Before God. He's going to be that prophet Elijah that prepares the way. He's going to go before God Himself comes and he will go before him in the power and spirit of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children that sounds familiar and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared the prophetic voice is silent no more and it picks up right where it left off with the exact words of malachi 3 and malachi 4 God said a prophet like Elijah would come, and now that prophet like Elijah is here. His name is John, and the Lord will be gracious to you through him. Because God is going to use this spirit-filled John to point the world to hope. Hope in Jesus. That is why John is filled with the Holy Spirit. To point the world to hope in Christ. He starts doing that before he's even born. Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit already. All you got to do later when you're at home, read verses 39 to 45. Verses 39 to 45, while John is still in Elizabeth's womb, Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant Mary, comes into their presence and John kicks his mama to point out the presence of Jesus. Like that's, that's why he's filled with the Spirit. To break the silence, the 400-year silence of despair with the sound of hope for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Hope for all of God's people, for Theophilus, for you, and for, for me. Shades. God has answered the barrenness of the world with the birth of this baby. He will point us all to the one who can fill up our barren hearts with the hope of Jesus. This passage, don't misread this passage. 
This passage is not Luke promising all of us that if we'll just trust God long enough, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, then we will get whatever our personal barrenness is filled up in the way we want. If we'll just trust God long enough, then we'll, we'll get that baby, or we'll get that spouse, or we'll get that job, or whatever it is that we have wanted. No, this is Luke promising us that we have a greater hope to fill up all the barren places of all of our lives, and his name is Jesus. This baby, John, is born to point us to him. Luke is pointing Theophilus, he's pointing us to this central hope, to the hope of Advent, the hope that God keeps his promises. That's the hope of Advent. That God is a God who keeps His promise. Right here, Luke is saying, Hey, Shades. Hey, Theophilus. Hey, Zechariah. You remember Malachi chapter 4? God is keeping His promises. This Advent announcement breaks the 400-year silence of despair with the sound of hope. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Zechariah doesn't. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know what I'm saying? Again, this is how I read the Bible. In other words, he says, I, I don't believe this unless you prove it. But here's the deal. Zechariah should be able to do the same thing that Luke is asking us and Theophilus to do. Luke, Luke is asking us right here, we just said it, Luke is asking us to look back on God's faithfulness and see how he's proven himself over and over and over again. He's asking us right here to look back on the promise of Malachi chapter 4 and how God is keeping that right here to send the prophet like Elijah before the coming of the Lord himself. Look back at God's faithfulness and that will empower you to look forward in faith. Zechariah should be able to do this too. He's a priest. He knows his Old Testament better than any of us do. I mean, surely the very situation he's in would remind him of just a couple of situations he's read about before. Of angels announcing miraculous births to the barren. He knows about the wife of Manoah and the birth of Samson. He knows about Hannah and the birth of Samuel. And most of all, most of all, he knows about Abraham and Sarah and the miraculous birth of Isaac, specifically when they were both past the baby-bearing years. But still, Zechariah doesn't believe. He demands more evidence. I know you've given me all of that, but I want God has already provided all the evidence that Zechariah needs. And that's what Luke wants Theophilus and us to see. You want certainty? You want rock-solid biblical hope? Look back on all the evidence that God has given you of His faithfulness to His promises. Shades, He's given you a lot. Look back in here, in Scripture, Look back at all the evidence of God's faithfulness to His promises. That's what we're looking at this morning. It's what Luke is showing us. Look back at His faithfulness that you may be empowered to look forward in 
faith. This is precisely what Zechariah does not do. He doesn't look back at God's faithfulness, so he doesn't look forward in faith. He doesn't believe. And in verse 19, we see that the angel is not too pleased. Read it with me. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. It's like a direct rebuke. Zechariah had had said, you know, how how am I going to know? Like, I'm old. He's like, well, I'm Gabriel. My wife's advanced in years. I stand in the presence of God. Bring it. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news, this gospel. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. I am Gabriel. Those words would would snap Zechariah's Old Testament soaked mind back to Daniel chapters 8 through 10 because that's the last time that Gabriel showed up. It was 500 years earlier. He showed up to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice to prophesy to Daniel about the coming messianic age, the coming of God Himself as King. And Daniel, if you go back and read it, Daniel was so awestruck, he temporarily went mute. Hmm. Now Gabriel has shown back up at another evening sacrifice, this time to say the Messianic age, it has arrived. But Zechariah isn't awestruck, nor is he mute. He runs his mouth in disbelief. So Gabriel shuts it for him. I mean, Zechariah asked for a sign, so he gets one. You're going to be mute until all these things come to pass. Gabriel strikes him mute as if to say, my announcement has broken the silence of despair with the sound of hope. Don't believe it, Zechariah. Sit in silence until you see it. Sit down, close your mouth, watch God prove you wrong. Zechariah, quiet down your doubts long enough to look back at God's faithfulness. Look back at the birth of Samson and Samuel and Isaac. Look back at the announcement of Gabriel to Daniel. Look back on all God's faithfulness that has gone before and let God's faithfulness cause you to look forward in faith. Gabriel's Advent announcement has broken the silence of despair with the sound of hope. And Shades, Advent makes the same announcement to you today. Advent breaks the silence of despair with the sound of hope. This season is meant to make us look back. It's meant to make us look back at the faithfulness of God. He promised to send a prophet like Elijah before he himself came, and he did that. He sent John the Baptist, and then he himself came, Jesus Christ whom John the Baptist would literally point to one day and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came just as He promised. He lived the only truly blameless life and He died as the final morning and evening sacrifice for your sins and mine. Hebrews 10 declares it beautifully. Every priest stands daily, daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down. He didn't keep going. He sat down because his work was done. He said it. It's finished. He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that day is coming. This season, yeah, it's meant to make us look back at God's faithfulness, but it is also also meant to make us look forward in faith. Christ will have a second advent. He will return and all His enemies will be a footstool under His feet. The enemies of pain and kidnapping. Footstool. Enemies of cancer and depression. The enemy of broken homes and broken nations and corruption and violence and bigotry. All the hate that feels so strong and it will no longer be able to mock the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Shades, in this season, as as the steel hammer of life's pain slams into the iron anvil of advent here it resound with the sound of hope god promised to send christ and he did and he has promised christ will come again and he will you are invited into the season of advent to look back this is this is the invitation shades you're invited into the season of Advent to look back at the faithfulness of God and to look forward in faith knowing that the same Holy Spirit who empowered John the Baptist empowers you to do that. He empowers you to look forward in faith and to do what John the Baptist himself did. Proclaim the hope you have in Christ to the world. This is what Zechariah himself finally did. After nine months of silently sitting and reflecting on the faithfulness of God, The Spirit empowered him to look forward in faith. And as soon as his tongue was loosed, in verse 67, he sang about his hope in the coming Christ. You know who else did this? Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. After he wrote, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill, to men. After he wrote that, he sat in silence, pen in hand. His, his ink dripped onto the remaining portion of the page. And he heard the church bells peal and break the silence yet again. And he knew that his song was not done. And from the fiery forge of his soul, Longfellow's heart sang out in faith. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Oh, shades, this is the hope that Advent has to offer. 
to look back at God's faithfulness. He promised to send Christ and He did. And to look forward in faith. He's promised Christ will come again and He will. And be empowered by the Spirit right now in the present to proclaim Christ as your rock-solid hope to the world. This is the hope of Advent. Hope to you. Hope to me. Christ. Hope to the world. Amen.